Good morning, my beloved church. It is good to be with you. As you know, we're part of a denomination called the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. We are happy to be a part of that denomination. This weekend was what we call our Presbytery, which is our regional gathering. Our region happens to be the entire West Coast, Hawaii, and Alaska, so it's a big dang region. But we all were gathered together up in Kent, and you, I wish you could have been there to see how your church was represented. Um, You would have been proud. Ryan Palmer, for instance, who is our director of student ministries, yesterday, Ryan was examined to come under care. That means to begin the process of becoming a pastor in the EPC. Uh, He had the worst possible time slot that he could have drawn. He was the fourth of four at the end of the last day. And yet he got up there, and by the time he's done, he, he could have done the mic drop because he, he was so powerful, his testimony was so compelling, and everyone was just stirred by that. You would have been proud. And then the day before, our own Ellis White was examined for his final examination and approved to become a pastor in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Again, I wish you could have seen him because different ones were being examined that day at different times and they're kind of standing behind their pulpit and, you know, a little nervous and it's a very nerve-wracking thing. Ellis puts the pulpit to the side, pulls the mic out of the stand and then just begins to preach. (laughs) And you would not be surprised. Uh, His hair was even higher than it normally is. It was breathtaking. I mean, I don't know how much moose it took, but it was like awesome kind of an eighth wonder of the world how Alice gets it. So Chapel Hill, you were well represented. I hope you are proud. Are, are you proud of this? It's just awesome. And you are a part of that. You are the church that welcomes young talent and, and loves them and encourages them and bears with them and roots them on. I mean, that's, that's the kind of church you are. So I want to give you the credit that you deserve. You make it possible for young people to come in green and to, to go out experienced and ready to face the world. So well done on you. I'm, I'm really proud uh, of you. It's, it's an exciting time for our church. By the way, Ellis will be ordained February 12th, ordained and installed February 12th, right? here, I know that we will fill this place up to celebrate a six-year journey from the time that 22-year-old came over and uh, as a missionary to Gig Harbor. So we are, as you know, in the midst of a series called Intercede. After months of talking about prayer, we said, we're going to pray. And I know you're praying, but as a church, we're going to pray. You might have noticed that Pastor Megan was actually leading us through prayers that have guided us over the last few weeks. The first week, we prayed for the Big C Church, the Universal Church. It's easy to become kind of insular and pray only for our needs, but we said, listen, we have got to pray for our brothers and sisters around our community and around the world. So we turned our hearts outward and gave more of ourselves away in prayer that way. The next week, we prayed prayed for our nation. And, uh, and the last week we prayed for our city. How I wish that you could have been there if you weren't. A hundred people showed up at the post office last Sunday, and we did a prayer walk around our city. And it was, it was terrific. A woman came out and said, are you guys having a block party? I said, yes, we are. <laughs> Another woman was bringing her garbage out to the curb, and, and they ended up praying with her by her garbage can. And the owner of Kelly's was there. They went in and prayed. And they, she said, would you pray for business? It's low during this season. And she, they said, can we pray for you right here, right now? And so in her restaurant, they prayed for her. 
So it was a, a terrific time. And I hope that you are participating in this journey. You know, if all you do is listen, study, hear sermons about, it won't make any difference to you. I hope that you are doing your part to join in interceding, in really going to your knees for the sake of the things that matter to the Lord. And this morning we turn to, I think, one of the things that matters deeply to the Lord and certainly needs our prayer. For today we turn to that most foundational of human relationships, marriage. Marriage. Our, our society, our church, our world depends on the strength of marriage. And so we are going to turn our intercessions toward that. And certainly, marriage is under attack as it never has been uh, before. I want you to listen to some statistics. The divorce rate in the United States is about 50%. Now, that sounds bleaker than it actually is because um, many of those are repeat divorcees. So there's about, about two-thirds of those who marry will uh, stay married to the person they were married to until that one or the other of them dies. So that's encouraging, but it's still a very bleak number of one-third that end in divorce. And it's, uh, and it's not surprising when you hear other statistics. One recent study suggests that um, 23% of married men and 19% of married women admit to cheating on their spouses. That is a huge number. And a contributing factor to this infidelity, frankly, is the growth of social media. One study found that a 20% increase, listen to this, a 20% increase in the Facebook enrollment was associated with a greater than 4% increase in the divorce statistics. Facebook is not good for marriages. And you add to that the Supreme Court's recent ruling that redefines marriage in a way that the Bible never intended and that our Creator never intended. And it's no surprise that marriages are struggling. And there's no difference in our idyllic little ghetto of Gig Harbor. Are you aware, for instance, that there is a thriving swingers group in Gig Harbor where the couples exchange spouses for sexual trysts? It is, it is larger than you can imagine. This is, um, this is a tough city to be married in, and there's not a week that passes by where I do not hear about another Chapel Hill couple that is either getting divorced or struggling mightily. And I heard again this week, it, it never ceases to surprise me and dishearten me, and it would you too. And I know some of you out there, I see your faces. I see the pain that even talking about this brings to you because you are in the midst of that struggle. So my heart goes out to you. Here's something even more discouraging. Some say that there is no difference in the statistics between Christians and non-Christians as far as divorce. Have you, how many of you heard that? There's no difference. Well, here's, the, here's a piece of good news. That is not true. That is not true. A, a nationwide study in the American Journal of Sociology determined that the strongest factor in predicting lower divorce rates in a county is the concentration of conservative or evangelical Protestants in that county. In other words, put it a different way, the higher the number of evangelical Protestant believers in a county, the lower the divorce rate. That's good news, isn't it? And another study finds that Protestant couples who are active in their faith, now active in their faith, that means faithfully in worship, involved in Bible, not, not just phoning it in once in a while when nothing else conflicts on a Sunday morning, actively living out their faith, their divorce rate is 35% lower 
35% is a big number. But what if I could offer you even better odds? I want you to take a guess with me this morning. What percentage of couples who pray together on a daily basis ends up getting divorced? Call out the number, do you think? What percentage of those who pray on a daily basis end up getting divorced? Any guesses? Well, I didn't, I couldn't hear you. <laughs> hold it, hold up your fingers. I mean, tell, call it out once again. Okay. The answer is 1%. 1%. Put a, so according to a 1980s Gallup study, of those couples who pray together on a daily basis, 99% of them stay married. And a more recent study done by the University of Texas, San Antonio, corroborated those findings. So the old adage that the couple who prays together stays together is apparently true. That being the case then, what do you think is the percentage of couples who pray together on a daily basis? Yeah, it's 4%. 4%. So this week, I want us to intercede for marriage. And I want us to start by interceding for our marriages. To pray for our marriages. And I'm going to speak uh, unashamedly to those of us who are married. And I'm going to tell you up front that my hope is that by the time my message is done, you will be persuaded to go home and pray together. Try it once. Even if you've never done it before, when you hear statistics like that, how could you not be willing, no matter how awkward it might be, to say, let's give it a shot? There is an epidemic of divorce. We Christians have the cure. The question is, will we take the cure or not? And for those of you who are not married, and I know there are many of you out there, single and and widowed, I beg your forbearance. Because surely it is in all of our best interest when marriages go well. It is, and, and there's not one of us who has not been touched by the scourge of divorce. Isn't that right? By friends or family members. We know how devastating it is. So if you are single and you would like to be married, then listen to what I say and put this into practice and make sure that you find someone who would be this kind of a person with you. And if you are not married and, and you don't expect to be, or God has called you like Jesus or Paul to a life of singleness, then would you, I beg you would, you, would you join in praying with your brothers and sisters, for those of us who are married, that we might have marriages that would thrive and be good for this church and be good for this community. So that is my entreaty to you this week, that we will pray for marriages. My text comes from Genesis chapter 2. Turn with me, if you'd like to, Genesis chapter 2, near the front of the book, beginning with verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. And brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever he called them, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, 
and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two of them shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. So, Holy Spirit, will you take your word, spoken through my mouth, and change our hearts and our marriages and our lives, because we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You recognize this story. It comes from the account of creation. God has just created everything in the, in the creation, and so that's where this is coming. And the opening lines of this particular text are actually jarring, given the context of the 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 creation account. Because for the first time we hear these words, it is not good. Remember that? The Lord said, it is not good. Up until now, God has thought that everything was pretty darn good. He Six times in the creation account, God creates something and he says, oh, that's good. Kind of pats himself on the back. Who else is going to do it? So he pats himself on the back. At the end of creation, he looks at the whole of it, the totality of it, and he said, oh, that is very good. But then we come to chapter 2, verse 18, and we see for the first time something that is not good. He says, it is not good that man should be alone. And of course, the man isn't alone. God is with him. He's got God. And right after he says that, the Lord God traipses all of the animals in front of him to name all of the animals. Uh, and yet, he was still alone, even with all of that, those animals in front of him. In fact, probably reminded even more of his aloneness as he watched them walk two by two by two in front of him. I imagine that his enthusiasm for the naming process de- de- kind of diminished as it went on. Hippopotamus and rhinoceros. But about a thousand go by as a cat, dog, whatever. So God gives him this great gift, this great gift of a wife that is created out of his very bone, his rib. <clears throat> and we are told that when Adam opens his eyes and sets his first glance upon this naked gorgeousness, he says, this at last, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Really, the best Hebrew translation is, wow, where have you been all my life? That's better. So here we have what is the first and the only perfect marriage, right? Shortly that'll end as well. But for the moment, it is the perfect marriage. And the perfect marriage contains these three things. I want you to take a a look at this and assess your own marriage as you consider this. There are three things that make up the perfect marriage. Fitness, oneness, nakedness. Fitness, oneness, nakedness. Fitness comes in this verse 18. God says, I will make a helper fit for him. And that word in the Hebrew suggests the perfect complement, the the matching together. God doesn't make a clone of Adam. He makes the complement for Adam. There was a line in the the movie Jerry Maguire that you might remember, made probably more famous by Dr. Evil in Austin Powers. Remember? (laughs) You complete me, mini-me, you complete me, right? Well, this is really the meaning of this text in a very deep sense. That's what this word means, this word fit means. God gave Adam a person who, with her gifts and her personality, 
and her spirituality and, and her physicality was a perfect fit, a complement to him. My wife Cindy fits me in so many ways. We have been gone from each other a lot in these last two weeks, and I, three weeks actually, and I miss her so much because I'm reminded in her absence of how much I need her. She is a more thoughtful person than I am. She is a quieter person than I am. She is more generous than I am. And frankly, as I watch her life, I think she's a better disciple than I am. And I was very alone. And then God gave her to me, and she makes me a better man in every way. How about you, as you think about your beloved, the person that God has gifted to you? In what way are you completed? How way, in what way are you complemented by that person? I want you to uh, do something. Pull this insert out. Wave it at me so I know you're really doing what I'm asking you to do. And, and here's what I want you to do for this moment. I'm just going to give you a few seconds, but I'll bet you can do this. I want you to think, what is one way that my wife, my husband, completes me, complements me, is a fit to me? What unique gift does he or she bring to our marriage? I want you to think about that and, and, it, and then write it down in, 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 on line A. Write it down on line A. I'm going to give you 10 seconds. All right, there's a second quality that makes for the perfect marriage, and it's oneness, oneness. Verse 24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, obviously, this is an allusion to their sexual relationship. Sex, by the way, just to be on the record, it was God's idea. Sex was God's great idea, and it was a gift that was given in the context of marriage between a man and a woman for a lifetime commitment. It was intended to bind that couple together in an intimacy that is known in no other way in no other human relationship. The text for the word, the old word cleave, the Hebrew meaning of that word is actually drawn from metallurgy. The word cleave is taken from metallurgy, and it's taken from the practice of taking metals and melting them down and smelting. So when you melt one metal and melt another metal and pour them into each other, that was the Hebrew idea from which the word cleave is drawn. It is indivisible. It is indistinguishable. Once you have melted these two down and poured them into each other, they become an indivisible one. And, uh, and, and this is the image that we are to have of what marriage is intended to be. When a man and wife are poured into each other through the sexual act, it is symbolic of really what God is doing in them spiritually and emotionally. Uh, it is not just a physical act. It is a spiritual and emotional smelting process that makes them one. It makes them indivisible. This is why, beloved, why sex before marriage is so damaging. Because you give away a part of yourself that you may or may not ever get back. And it is why divorce is a sin and destructive. Because it takes two people who have become one and then it rends them apart and tries to make them two again. And you never have two holes. There's always a part that's left behind. And all you got to do is ask someone who's gone through divorce and they will corroborate this. There's a part of you that's torn uh, that you always leave a part behind. So you have this idea, ideal marriage has fitness, you have oneness, and then the last thing it mentions is nakedness. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
Obviously, this refers literally to being naked. There was a state of innocent delightfulness and, uh, in, in, in that first marriage. But it means something deeper. Scripture means it to mean something deeper. It means openness. It means transparency. It means vulnerability. It means that nothing is withheld, that nothing is hidden. And, uh, and this naked was not, nakedness was not just before each other. It was also a nakedness before the Lord God. So together, the two of them were in this innocent state of absolute transparency with each other and with God. And this is our introduction to prayer as a couple. Because what is prayer if it is not an intimate relationship with God? Right? We are told later that God used to walk in the cool of the afternoon with them in the garden. But when Eve ate the forbidden fruit, and she talked her passive, wimpy husband into doing it too, what was the first consequence? The first consequence was shame. We are told that after they had eaten the fruit, they covered themselves and they hid. The first consequence of shame is covering and hiding. Holding back, not being transparent, not being vulnerable, not being naked. The the saddest words in the Bible, perhaps, are found in Genesis chapter 3, where God says, Adam, where are you? And it's not like God didn't know where he was. He was hiding from him. And there was this breach of relationship, a destruction of intimacy. So, coming back to prayer, here it is. When couples pray together, they restore the paradise that has been lost. When couples pray together, they restore a part of paradise that has been lost. When we pray, when we listen to the prayerful heart of our beloved, when we cheat and open our eyes and look at that beautiful wife with her eyes closed, just praying in earnestness, when we listen as we lift up each other before the Lord, we get a renewed glimpse of our fitness for each other. We have a renewed sense of deeper oneness, and we return to that original nakedness, that transparency and openness and honesty that the Lord created us to have with each other and before Him. Every morning when I wake up, Before I leap into my day, which I'm prone to do, and it's often quite early, I stop and I turn over and I touch and I pray for that wife that is lying next to me in bed who will not wake up for four more hours. (laughs) So we don't have morning devotions. But I do pray for her. I pray gratitude for her, a blessing upon this gift that God has given to me. One of the ways that we've learned to pray is to do it prayer walks. So when we walk, and we often walk together, we always talk about things. So the thing we've added, which has been transformational for us, we, we pray what we're talking about. We walk, we talk, and then we pray about what we're talking about, and then we keep walking. We don't stop in the middle and, okay, let's pray. No, we just, we eyes open, but just keep going. And at night, when we embrace each other in bed, uh, it is the most precious way to end our day as we pray and to start our slumber. And I invite you to give it a try. I spoke this week with a woman who had never once prayed with her husband. This is a strong, they are both believers, strong believers, but they had never prayed together. And then they heard something in church that stirred them and they decided to give it a try. And she said, although it was awkward at first, and by the way, nakedness is awkward at first, isn't it? But she said, though it was awkward at first, they kept going at it, and they have not missed a night since. And she said, pay attention to these words, this was life 
changing for them. And they already had a good marriage. She said, it has changed the nature of our relationship. When I hear him pray, it gives me a different perspective on who this man is. End quote. There are all kinds of reasons that couples give for not praying together. Time is one. We don't have the time. What rubbish. If you watch TV, even one hour, then you tell me you don't have five minutes or two minutes that you could give to this practice that could transform your marriage. So that's ridiculous. For many, though, it is a matter of the awkwardness that this woman told me about, of not knowing how to do it. And this is especially true for guys. It's especially true for us guys. Prayer often comes easier for women, for whom words often come easier. And wives, if you are not patient, or if you try to correct the way your husband is praying, there is no faster way to shut him down. So championing him, cheering for him when he makes one even feeble effort is very important. And here's another little trick about praying for each other. You do not confess the other person's sins. You know what I'm talking about, do you? You do not use that holy moment as an opportunity to preach to them about what they ought to be doing with your mom or how they ought to be keeping the house cleaner. That is not, that is cheating. You confess your own sins and you lift them up and you bless them and you praise, you pray for them. But in this day when our marriages are under attack, if you knew you could do something that would terrifically up the odds of not only surviving but thriving, why in the world wouldn't you do it? Even if it is awkward. When we pray together, just think about this. When we pray together, we restore a piece of paradise. And in that moment, we enter into an intimacy with each other and with God, the the intimacy for which we were created and to which one day we will return before the Lord. So here is my challenge, our intercede challenge for this week. Pray together. Pray together. I, uh, at least one time, and I would say that you do it tonight. Go home. Maybe it's in bed together, maybe it's before you go to bed together, but before the doors of amnesia have wiped all recollection from, this, uh, from your minds about this, you go home and you do it tonight. And I'm going to help you. That's what this is. So take this back out one more time. Here's the way that I'm going to urge you to do this. Here's how you're going to do it. First of all, I want you right now to lean over to your spouse and tell them one thing that you could use prayer for. One thing you could use prayer for, share that. Again, I'm going to give you just 15 or 20 seconds and write that down in B because we already filled out line A. Go. And if you aren't quite finished, keep thinking about this and share it because there's nothing more powerful than sharing your prayer and having your beloved share, uh, pray, pray for you in that. So write that down and then I want you to take this home, take it to bed with you, lie in bed together, hold hands and then pray. And I want you to start with the husband's. Husbands, this is time to man up, guys. Pull on your big boy pants and and man up. I don't care if it's uncomfortable. This is your opportunity to take some leadership in your spiritual life together. So I want the husbands to start, and you're going to lie together, and you're going to pray. And to give you an example, this is what I have been praying for, and if Cindy had been there with me this last few days, this is what I would have prayed for here. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for Cindy. I'm grateful for her gift of compassion to our marriage. Please be with her as she delivers the eulogy for her aunt's funeral. Bind our hearts together in perfect unity and help us to live in shameless honesty before each other and before you. 
protect our marriage and bless our children in Jesus' name. Amen. As simple as that, as heartfelt as that, and then it's the wife's turn, and you pray the same thing, your own, with your fill-ins to, for your husband. And then when you're done, I would say, together, pray the Lord's Prayer. Wouldn't that be a good way to end it? We've done that. We've talked about it. We pray together the Lord's Prayer. That's as simple as that. This would be a fight against divorce, but not just against divorce. Positively, it would be a fight for a, a, a life of intimacy, for a relationship that's deep and intimate and life-giving. Who doesn't want that? So, I'm going to ask this. How many right now will raise their hand and promise that this week they will pray at least one time with their spouse? Raise your hand. Keep them up because I'm memorizing. (laughs) All right. I'm going to hold you to this. I'm going to ask you about this next week. It could change your life. And for all of us, whether we are married or not, turn turn this over. On the back there, I want to ask you to pray for marriages. There is not one of us who doesn't know at least one couple whose marriage is struggling. So would you lift those people? This morning I was praying for the couple I heard about this week, that the Lord would redeem that. You know, we're the God, we're the the people of, of, of Easter. We believe that death can be brought back to life again, even in relationship. And so would you pray for that and then pray for these other things together. When marriages are strong and good, society is strong and good. The church is strong and good. But our marriages are under attack. And our enemy, the devil, he is working overtime to destroy this most foundational relationship in human society. And so I challenge us, let's go to war. Let's go to war on this. Let's take back the land that has been stolen and reclaim what God intends for us to know in our marriages. All right? Let's pray. So Father, that is our prayer. And may it begin this week by couples who have the courage to try to do what might be awkward but to enter into marriage, into, a, into an intimacy before you and before each other that perhaps they've never done before. Would you please help people to pray tonight and then another night and then another night and discover in that the power and the intimacy and the transparency that comes when we lay our hearts before you, before each other. So we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.